Dear friends, it was some months ago now that we began our study of the Heidelberg Catechism. And you'll remember, and I think many of you have it in your memories even, the first question and answer of the Heidelberg Catechism teaches us that our only comfort in life and death is that we are not our own. You remember those words. The answer given is that I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And when we preached on this sermon, you'll remember that I said this is our identity. That our catechism gives us and points us to our identity in Christ. That this is who we are. Bond slaves of Jesus Christ, owned by God. Well, today we've come then in our study of the Lord Jesus Christ to this title, which is Our Lord. Our Lord. And our catechism teaches us now, why do you call him our Lord? And the catechism teaches us that because not with gold or silver, but with his precious blood, he has delivered and purchased us body and soul from sin and from the tyranny of the devil to be his very own. So that this term or this lay, this name that we give to Jesus, our Lord, is like saying our owner, our master. That's what we want to consider this evening. That we are by rights the property of Jesus Christ. Now you know, my friends, that nothing was more common in Greco-Roman society than slaves. It is estimated that there were probably double the number of slaves as free people. Of course, it's, it's very difficult to know with any kind of exactness, but roughly speaking, there were double the number of slaves in Roman society, especially in the cities, the larger cities, than free people. And so you can imagine that as Paul walks through the Roman Empire, right, and he sees the situation, he sees slaves laboring for their masters. And just like, his, just like Jesus did, right, when Jesus saw things in society, when he saw things in life, he took them and he used them as pictures and illustrations of things he was trying to teach. And now Paul does a similar thing. And he looks and he sees slavery. And he says, now there's a picture that I can use to teach the gospel. And of course, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he latches onto that, doesn't he? And he says, slavery. Now there's something that I can use to teach the gospel. And so God uses these concepts that people were already familiar with. And he uses them as illustrations and pictures of our salvation. Now we are not familiar with slavery. We are not, slavery is not something that we are familiar with. In fact, my friends, I have to speak to one of the uh, crying deficiencies in our English translations of Scripture, that the word slave in the Bible is almost always softened to servant. And that is wrong. That is a poor translation. I'm not usually this adamant about translation issues. Sometimes translations can go either way. But I did a search, and, and the, the, the term servant in the Bible should almost always be translated not servant, 
That's a very different... A servant is an employee. But slave... My study uh, showed that uh, there's actually one translation of the Bible that has just come out, just recently, called the... I believe it's called the Legacy... I'm not sure about the first. It's, it's the LSB. It's the Legacy Standard Bible. Don't, don't quote me on that first term. I think it's the Legacy Standard Bible. And they have gone back, and they have changed all those terms, servant to slave. So even the Bible translation committees are now beginning to realize that servant is not an adequate translation for the word that we have in our Bible as servant. And I'll make this clear as I explain the text this evening. So a servant is not a slave, but the Bible teaches us to think of our identity as slaves. And our catechism has picked up on that. And especially when we call Jesus Lord, we are that buried in that term, in that name that we give to Jesus is this assumption, right, that we are his property. Well, my friends, I'd like to look at you what redemption means in Israelite society, what it meant in Greco-Roman society, and then how Paul uses this to communicate to us salvation. Now, if you turn with me to Leviticus 25, that's our text this morning, or this evening, you see that immediately already in our very first verse, we have this idea of redemption. I'm sorry, in verse 24. We started with verse 23. But if you look at Leviticus 25 and verse 24, you'll see, Thus, for every piece of your property, you are to provide for the redemption of the land. Now, that word redemption there means to provide for the redemption of the, of the land means that you need to make it possible for people to buy it back. That's what redemption means. It means to purchase it and to purchase it back. And then all the rest of this scripture has given all these different scenarios in which a person might have lost his property or might have even lost his right to his own person and sold himself as a, as a, as a, as a servant, as a kind of slave. Now, if you come into, uh, in the first Leviticus 25, uh, verses 13 to 28, it's talking there about the redemption of property. So if you look at verse 25, if a fellow countryman of yours becomes so poor he has to sell part of his property, then his nearest kinsman is to come and buy back. Now, buy back there is just the same concept as to redeem something. So in other words, a family member can come and buy it back. If you became so poor that you had to sell some of your property to survive, then one of your family members could come and buy that property back for you. Verse 26, Or in case a man has no kinsmen or no family members, but he so recovers his means as to find sufficient for its redemption, in other words, he, he becomes wealthy enough where he can buy that property back himself, verse 27, then he has to calculate the years since its sale and refund the balance to the man whom he sold it, and so return his property. Now, it gets very complicated, doesn't it? You have to be something of a mathematician to figure this out, because remember, every 50 years, the Jubilee Day came. The Jubilee year came. And in the year of Jubilee, all these sales of property reverted back to their original owner. So when the kinsman, or when the family member, or when the person himself bought back the property, they had to take into consideration how far away the year of Jubilee was, And that affected the price that they got for that land that they had to pay to redeem that property, to buy it back. That's uh, that's what you're given there in verse 27 and verse 28. 
Then we come to verse 29, which talks about the redemption of houses. Likewise, if a man sells a dwelling house in a walled city, then his redemption right, there you see that term again, redemption right means the right to buy it back, remains valid until a full year from its sale. His right of redemption lasts a full year. That means at any time during that year, if he has sufficient money to buy back that property, the man who purchased it from him must sell it back to him at a fair price. Once a full year has passed, then the time has passed. Verse 30, but if it is not bought back for him within the space of a full year, then the house that is in the walled city passes permanently to its purchaser. Throughout his generations, it does not revert in the Jubilee. Not even in the 50th year, when the Jubilee came, would that house go back to him. Verse 31, the houses of the villages, however, which have no surrounding wall, shall be considered as open fields. They have redemption rights, and they revert in the Jubilee. So houses in the villages were under a different commandment. There they had the redemption right, and in the 50th year, that house went back to its original owner. Then you have the property of the Levites, which is given us in verse 33. And now we come to verse 39, redemption of persons. If a countryman of yours becomes so poor with regard to you that he sells himself to you, you shall not subject him to a slave's service. So now the situation is very dire. The man has become so poor, he has no property to sell, so he sells himself. Now this kind of a person would not be a slave, would he? This kind of person is not a slave. This is what we would maybe know in our own term as an indentured servant, right? He, he, he works for this person, right, in order to pay off his debts. But once his debt is paid, he is set free again. So he's not a slave. And the reason I bring this up now is especially because it shows us what is meant by that word redemption and redeem, right? So in verse 39, it says that uh, uh, in verse 39, he becomes poor, he sells himself to you. Verse 40, right, you're not to, uh, uh, you'll, you'll treat him as a hired man, as if he were a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee, when all these debts were forgiven. And then in verse 42. Now here's an instance where, again, I, 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 uh, I question the translation of the, of the word servant. So look at verse 42. This is very important. Verse 42, it says, For they are my servants. Now this is God speaking. For they, the children of Israel, are my servants, whom I brought out from the land of Egypt. They are not to be sold in a slave sale, or they are not to be sold in a slave market. Now, my friend, the word in verse 42, for they are my servants, is the same word, the same word as the word at the end of the verse, which says they are not to be sold as slaves. So again, I say that the the, the word in verse 42 should be, for they are my slaves, whom I brought out from the land of Egypt. They are not to be sold in a slave sale. So, my friends, this is the redemption of persons. And I just point out to you now, notice the reason then in verse 42 that God gives for all this, all these laws about redeeming property, redeeming houses, walled cities, unwalled cities, all this, you know, the Jubilee Day is this many years away. 
all these laws. The reason given to him is in verse 42 is, for they are my slaves. Now, isn't that interesting, my friends, that we read repeatedly in Scripture that God says, I delivered my people Israel from the bondage and from the slavery of Egypt. And yet they're still slaves. Because now they're not the slaves of Egypt, but they're God's slaves. That's what we read in Leviticus Leviticus 25. They are still slaves, it says in verse 42. That's what we read in verse 42. They are my slaves, whom I brought out from the land of Egypt. Well, that's noteworthy. And you'll want to tuck that away in your mind as we think about this. That Israel, the Israel nation was delivered from one slavery and brought under the slavery of a new master. Well, I move now to redemption in Greco-Roman society. So now out of the Old Testament and into the New Testament, I told you already that the number of slaves in Roman cities was often two to one to a free person. And the status of a slave was worse sometimes than that of a person's cattle. A slave had zero rights that his master was bound to observe. The master could crucify his slave without giving any reason. In fact, there were, there were Roman jurists at the time who said that a slave could not be injured. Now, they're not saying that a slave couldn't be injured in terms of that he couldn't you know, have his arm broken or something. But they're saying that in the eyes of the law, a slave was never injured. He had no rights. If, if, he, if he was injured, it, there was nothing that the slave could do or that anybody could do. The slave had no rights before the law. The slaves uh, in the Roman Empire were completely dominated by their owner. They were completely subsumed under their owner's life. They were, their, uh, uh, their life was miserable. I, I should say, their life was as miserable as their owner was miserable. Some of the slaves had good owners and, and, and owners who respected them. But you can imagine that by far these slaves were treated worse than dogs. Now, the one thing that a slave could do, if again, only if his owner was open to it and would, would allow it, was the practice of manumission. Manumission, which, my friends, is just a simple synonym with our term redemption. Because a slave could buy his freedom if he was able to save up enough money, he could put down the price and he could buy his freedom. And he could redeem himself. He could buy back, as it were, his freedom and be delivered from bondage. This is the situation that Paul would have seen as he went through the Roman Empire. He would have seen these slaves. He would have seen their misery. And he would have known this practice of redemption. Now, the slave could buy his own freedom. The master of a slave could buy his freedom. Some masters uh, were so highly, some slaves were so highly respected by their masters that their masters would buy their freedom. And especially if the master had no sons. Because it was a deep shame and humiliation in Roman society to not have an heir to your estate especially if you're a more wealthy person. And so sometimes what these Romans, these Roman masters would do then is they would take their trusted slave, their best slave, they would buy his freedom, 
and then adopt that slave into their family, and then that slave would become the heir of that man's estate. To save him the trouble of not having an heir and not having the the family name carry on into the generations. That was the humiliation of having your family name drop off and, and, and not be carried on. This is the situation now that Paul sees, my friends. And that brings me then to this third point, redemption in the New Testament. Because now Paul sees that, and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he takes that concept and he presses it into the service of the Christian gospel. And he uses that just as his master had done before. And he uses it to explain the gospel. And the first verse I turn then is to 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 20. In both of these verses, 1 Corinthians 6.20 and 1 Corinthians 7.23, we have the same expression. And that expression is this, for you were bought with a price. You were bought with a price. And my friends, that is straight out of this idea of being a slave. Slaves were bought with a price. A slave could buy his freedom at a price. A master could buy his slave's freedom at a price. And then to go back to all that history in the Old Testament of the redemption right and having the right to buy back either your property or a house or even your own person, your own liberty. All that thought, that's the thought world, you might say, of this concept as Paul thinks about redemption and about slavery. And so if you look with me at 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 20, in this particular context... Paul is talking about glorifying God with your body. And the context here is sexual purity. And in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 20, after making all these different comments about prostitution, about uh, uh, offering up our bodies to God as a, as a pure uh, temple, a, our body being a temple of the Holy Spirit, he says in verse 20, or in verse 19, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, therefore glorify God in your body. You see how Paul is, is taking that concept of not being your own, and he's saying you were bought with a price, you are a slave of Christ. You belong to Him. You must owe Him your complete obedience. And therefore that applies also in all the issues that surround the seventh commandment and the issue of adultery. You were bought with a price. And this is the reason why Christians are called to purity. You have been bought with a price. You are slaves of Jesus. And then in the very next chapter, and this is actually what I took as my text this evening, 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 23. And I, I love this, this, uh, this discussion of what Paul says here. Because you know, my friends, that there was so much shame attached to being a slave. If you were a slave, you were, you were like a dog in, in this society. Everybody could spit upon you with contempt. You had no rights. You were nothing. You were subhuman. Look what, and by the way, many of the early Christians came from lives of, they were slaves. Christianity had a great effect on the lower classes of society when it came. And in 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 
uh, 21. Paul is, or verse 20. <clears throat> Paul says, Each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. Paul is saying that it's advisable, right? He's not saying that in every situation you have to remain in your condition. Of course, it's not wrong to move to one job to another. But especially Paul is speaking to the lower classes of society. And he says, each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. In other words, whatever your status in life was, when God called you to be a Christian, and when you put your trust in Jesus, when you became a Christian, be content to stay in that calling, in that situation, in that condition. And then in verse 21, he says, were you called while a slave? In other words, did you become a Christian when you were a slave? Do not worry about it. But if you are able also to become free, rather do that. That shows that Paul didn't, he wasn't handing down an absolute thing, right? You have to stay, if you're a slave, you always must remain a slave. No, Paul says, if you have an opportunity to gain your freedom, by all means, take it. But Paul says, if you're a slave, don't worry about it. Don't let that bother you. Don't feel the shame, right, and the reproach that comes with being a slave. Why? And here you just have to love Paul's reasoning here. In verse 22, he says, For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freed man. In God's eyes, you're a free man. You've been bought with a price and taken out of bondage and brought into a new kind of slavery. And now this gets paradoxical, doesn't it? Because even though they're slaves of Christ, they're a free man. Paul says, don't worry about what you are on earth. What are you in the eyes of heaven? And in the eyes of God, you're a free man. There's no shame in being a slave. Who cares? Don't worry if you're a slave on earth. Serve the Lord as a slave and be certain of this, that in God's eyes, you're a free man. And then Paul turns right around. Stay with me here. He says in verse 23, or uh, at the end of verse 22, he says, Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. So did you become a Christian as a free man? Were you a free man when you left behind the pagan lifestyle and joined yourself to Christ by faith? Guess what? You're a slave too. You're Christ's slave. We're all slaves, says Paul. Don't worry about what what your status on earth is. Well, I'm a free man. I'm a slave. So what, says Paul? In the eyes of God, you're a free man. Or you're a slave of Christ. We're all slaves. We're all free. doesn't matter what takes place on earth here. Again, you see how Paul is is latching on to this, this concept, this idea, this practice in society that was so common to his readers. And he's using it to illustrate Christian truth. In in chapter 6, the whole issue of purity. In chapter 7, the shame that a slave felt as being a slave. Paul says, don't let it bother you. You're a free man in the Lord. Then quickly to 1 Peter 1 and verse 18. In 1 Peter 1 and verse 18, we have the most detailed use. This is not Paul now, this is Peter and in 1 Peter 1.18, Peter writes, Knowing that you were not redeemed or purchased with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Here's now the glorious foundation truth of the gospel, right? 
that as Christians, we are slaves of Christ because Christ paid a price. He shed his blood. He gave his life to purchase his people. And he purchased them from what? From slavery. From the bondage that they were in. And what Peter says, the futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. That futile, depressing, despairing way of life that gave you no hope, no meaning, no purpose. But Jesus paid the price and he's redeemed you and he's made you his own slaves. He made you his own property. And that's also what our catechism says, isn't it? When it says that he has delivered it and purchased us, body and soul, what? Our catechism uses the expression from the tyranny of the devil. And now that's exactly what Peter said in verse 18, right? From from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. And our catechism calls it a tyranny of the devil. And that's what it is, isn't it? That's what it is. It is a tyranny, a bondage, a cruel slavery to be a non-Christian, to be an unbeliever. My friends, I hasten on to my applications here. In the first place, owned. In our culture and in our society, we also have this shame, don't we, that is attached to the idea that we are someone's property, that someone owns us. Now, I know we don't have slavery as it was uh, in in the New Testament times or even in our own nation's time in the 1850s, right? But even in our own time, right, that somebody would control us, that somebody would own us enough to, to be able to tell us what to do. You can't do that. You can't do this. It's a violation of our freedom. And we have such a tremendous idea in our in our society, in our culture of rights. You know, uh, when Alex, <coughs> Alexis de Tocqueville was a Frenchman who came to this country in the early 1800s and he made observations of people and he says, you know, America is a very strange place. In France and in England, you have all these status in societies, right? You're a nobleman or you're at this level or you're at this level, right? And there's all these rules and protocol, right, of where you are in society, what status level you're at, right? And you have to act a certain way. And if you greet a person, right, who's at this level and you're beneath him, you've got to do this. And if you're above someone else, you know, you never submit to this. But Alexis de Tocqueville said, when you go to America, everybody seems to be on an equal level. The most wealthy businessman will, will, will shake hands with the man who shines his shoes, I think we sense something of that in our own society, don't we? That even if you went to one of these people who are begging for food on the corners of our streets, right, and you went to a person like that and you you ordered him to do something, even he would look at you and say, well, what right do you have to tell me what to do? We just have this in our DNA, don't we? That we don't want to be controlled and owned by other people. And we we resent even sometimes the, the uh, being an employee, and having a boss who tells us what to do, even though he has a right to tell us what to do. And yet, my friends, as Christians, how completely the reverse. I, I said it at the beginning of the sermon. We confess in our Heidelberg Catechism, and we rejoice in it. We boast in it that I am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior. What a confession that is, and how diametrically opposed it is to our own values as American people, isn't it? How it, it, it cuts right across our pride. That I am not my own, but belong unto my Savior, Jesus Christ. And we had the same thing taught us this evening, that we say, our Lord. 
you know, it's interesting how, how almost glibly we use these expressions, right? We talk about our Lord Jesus Christ. And yet our catechism has gone through each of those terms, Jesus, Christ, and now Lord, and expanded them to us and shown us the richness of the concepts that are buried and implicit in those names that we give to our Savior. But this is not very flattering, is it? Our Lord, our Master, the one who owns us? Well, my friends, while that may be very obnoxious, to our American sense of equality and pride. It's our boast as Christians that we have completely lost our former identity, whatever that may have been. And we are now owned by Jesus Christ and our identity is bound up with him. You know, my friends, I I read in a book and I, I would recommend this book to you if you're looking for a book to read. There's a book by John MacArthur called Slave. It's a deeply interesting book, and some of the ideas in this sermon come from that book. And you'll find uh, in that book he talks about, as a Christian, you don't add Jesus to your life, right? It's not that this is who I am. I'm this person, and I'm a Christian, so I've tacked on Jesus to my life. That's not what a slave is. That's not what a slave does. My friends, a slave is a person who's completely given up his former identity. He has no rights of his own anymore. He is completely bound up with his master, Jesus Christ. His master defines everything for him. Now, while that, again, may not be very flattering to us, that is the truth of what it means to be a Christian. My friend, I have to tell you this evening that if your own life consists of your own identity with Jesus tacked on, then you're no slave of Christ. And if you're no slave of Christ, then you've not been redeemed by the blood of Christ. You've not, Christ hasn't paid the price for you. And so this is a point of examination for us, isn't it? Young men, young women, older ones, is Christ just tacked onto your life? Or is he your life? You remember the language that Jesus used. He said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a grain of wheat fall into the earth and die. It abideth by itself alone. But if it die, it beareth much fruit. Maybe you are a Christian here this morning, my friends. I trust you are. But you lament the fact that you bear so little fruit. Is it possible, my friends, that we think about our sanctification in this way? That I've added Jesus to my life. And that we need to revolutionize that completely. And that we need to die. Our original identity needs to die. And it needs to be put in the grave and buried and forgotten. And we need to come to grips with the fact that the only real, true Christian is the one who is a slave of Christ. My friends, how many of you say, Lord Jesus, in your prayers or in your your talk? And I ask myself, how many times have I haven't used that term? And how many times have I really stopped to think, am I, a sla- am I a slave? Have I completely lost my previous identity? You know, in a sense, you could say, I'm not even an Inglesma anymore. That's kind of my identity, isn't it? No, slave of Christ. What a precious thing it is when the scholars went down into the Roman catacombs. And when they saw the inscriptions, it was much more common in the early church. They saw the inscriptions on the graves of the early Christians. 
And what was, the, what was their boast, the pride written on so many? Slave of Jesus. And sometimes they couldn't even write. They couldn't even write that all. They could just put a cross there. Slave. Doulos is the, is the Greek term. Doulos Christu. Slave of Christ. Would you like that on your tombstone someday? Slave of Christ. What a precious truth, my friends. I come to my last point. The, well, I guess I kind of lobbed together the application one and two there of our identity. In the third place, my application then is jubilee. Do you remember, my friends, what we learned from Leviticus 25 and verse 42? That the Israelites, when they were redeemed from the slavery of Egypt, were brought right into the slavery to God himself. And the same thing is true of us. When we were redeemed from our former way of life, when we were redeemed from the tyranny of the devil, we were brought right into another kind of slavery. Would you turn with me, if you can, to the very last book of the Bible? Revelation chapter 22. Revelation 22, where we read about this river of water of life, clear as crystal. And look at verse 3 with me, please. Verse 3, there will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bond servants, and again, not bond servants, slaves. It's the Greek word for slaves. And his slaves will serve him. My friends, what do you think of that bondage? What do you think of that slavery? That is the happiest slavery we ever can know. And when the trumpet sounds one day, and when our Savior comes down to take us into the new heaven, into the new earth. It'll be a slavery. You and I, if we're Christians today, will enter into this new heaven and new earth as slaves of Christ. And we will serve him. That's what it says at the end of verse 3. And they will serve him. Who wants to be a slave this evening? Who's happy to bear the mark of a slave? Look at verse 4 in the same verse, same chapter. And they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. No more Inglesmans there. No more Klostermans and Reedstras and Newhouses and all the rest of you. Just Slaves of Christ. That's not very flattering to us. But my friends, I would submit to you that that is the highest freedom and privilege that you ever can come to in life. To have an assurance and to know that I will be a slave of Christ. That I'm a slave now. And I'm going to be a slave to Christ throughout all ages of eternity. Is that a privilege to you, my friends? 
bought with a price. Slaves to a never-ending eternity. May God give us, friends, to meditate upon that, to his glory. Shall we pray? Lord, we glory and boast in our status this evening as slaves, especially when we think of the price that was paid for our freedom. The life, the blood, the death of Jesus Christ for us so that we've been purchased out of our former way of life, that futile, pointless way of living, that tyranny of the devil, and brought into the glorious liberty of the children of God as slaves. A liberty that is a slavery. Lord, we come before you then and beg that you would impress these things upon our hearts, that we would rejoice in this world as slaves, no matter how rich or how poor we may be, no matter how far advanced we may be in the eyes of this world, no matter how powerful or influential we may be, or no matter how much, how little influence or power we may have, we make our boast this evening in being slaves of Jesus Christ, bought with a price. O Lord Jesus Christ, we praise you and worship you as Lord, as our Lord, as our Master, and we as your property. Lord, please do with us as seems good in your sight. Call us, send us, and give us a heart that loves to obey, to run in the way of your commandments. Lord, I pray that you would bless us then also with hope for that great jubilee day which is coming, when the trumpet shall sound and when liberty shall be proclaimed to all the captives who still live, in a sense, in bondage in this earth and to the glorious liberty and freedom of the children of God in heaven for a never-ending eternity. Lord, bless us and keep us then. Return us safely to our homes. We pray all these things, Lord, in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, let's sing of our Redeemer in the blue hymnal, number 439. I will sing of my Redeemer and his wondrous love to me. And what follows in the four verses of 439.